Good morning, Cornwall Church. It is good to have you here on this beautiful day that might get windy. We'll see. And those of you online, it's good to have you with us. Those in Skagit, so glad that you're with us with Pastor Scott and the whole team down there. And I uh, look forward to being with you in about three weeks. For those of you who are new, we have Inside Cornwall coming up in November. Hope you'll be a part of that. And those of you online, thanks for joining and worshiping with us today and with Pastor Brian and the community uh, that's gathered online. We're in this series about the parables that Jesus told, the puzzle of the parables. Before we get into that, I want to tell you a little bit of a story about my dad. My dad was, some of you uh, may remember my dad before he passed away. We had him preach here a few times. My dad had a, an amazing mind. I, I mean, his insights and his wisdom on just in life. I mean, he was like a, he kind of looked like Yoda, actually. He was short. But anyway, but he had this Yoda-like wisdom and insight in the way that he would tell it and, and the way he would bring it about in a homespun way. It was just very, very amazing. In addition to that, my dad had like the best memory of any person I've ever met. I mean, the, the amount of stuff that he could remember and poetry and scripture and never preached with a note. I mean, just amazing memory. And he had a sense of humor, uh, a really great sense of humor. And, and what most people weren't aware of is that there was this creative side of my dad's mind. And we as kids grew up with this. He was just dad. We just assumed everyone's dad was like this, and maybe yours was. But, but he was this, this creative mind, and he, would, he had this thing that we grew up with, this, this kind of ongoing running serial story that he had created and would create kind of on the fly. It was the adventures of Jim and Gloria. And he would just tell these stories. Jim and Gloria were their brother and sister combo, and they would just go through life, and he would tell us these stories. And the way he would just craft these words, it was vivid in our imagination, and we lived these stories stories as Jim and Gloria would, would ride their bikes along the river and get in a canoe and go on these adventures or they would walk through the forest and come across the cave and go in the cave and, and then it was real life stuff. Things were happening at school or in the alley or on the way to the park or, or then there would be these things where like the, the kids were having a mini bike race or go-karts and all this stuff and it just, it just drew us in and, and he would tell these stories and we lived these stories with Jim and Gloria and then he'd get to this point as he would build it to this apex and then he'd say and that's where we're going to stop for today. And we were begging him, no, dad, no, give us another chapter. Tell us more. And it was amazing. He would just kind of leave us, leave us hanging there. And while the stories were absolutely fascinating and enthralling in their own right, if we would have recorded them, if we would have written them down, I'm sure that we could be making unbelievable amounts of money on this. But the stories themselves, but here was the wisdom of dad is that as he would tell these stories and these circumstances for Jim and Gloria, he would weave into this story a circumstance, a situation, a, a moral dilemma where they had to make a choice. Where Jim and Gloria were, were faced with this, confronted with this decision, do I do the right thing or do I do the wrong thing? Do I go along with what all the other kids are doing or do I stand with courage and, and, and do what I know I should? Do I cheat and cut a corner here? Do I lie? Do I fib a little bit? Or, or do I have honesty? And, and, and he would bring them to these points. And then they would stop and say, and tomorrow we're going to find out what Jim and Gloria decide to do. Leave us hanging. And it made us think, this is what I think they'll do. And sometimes Lori, my sister, and I would talk, and Jerry as well, what do you think Jim and Gloria are going to do? I think this. I hope they do this. 
And what's amazing is we were begging him to tell us more of these. All the way through, my dad was telling these stories that taught us, woven in these life lessons of integrity, of character, of courage, of values, of biblical principles, and we were begging for more. We didn't even realize. He was, he was teaching us the principles of Scripture through these stories, and it was hidden right there in plain sight. And he created for us these role models. Jim and Gloria were role models in our lives, fictitious characters that we could draw on. This week, as I was thinking about this, I called both my brother and my sister. And I said, tell me what you remember about Jim and Gloria. And we just kind of reminisced the stories, the specific stories we remembered. And my sister told me about an instance that happened to her in the sixth grade. She was in Miss Lutz's class at Lincoln Elementary School in Vancouver, Washington. And Miss Lutz left the, the classroom during the, a quiz or a test and a friend sitting in a desk next, next to her said, Lori, give me the answer to question whatever. And this long, long, long before WWJD, my sister said as a sixth grader, she sat there in, church, in, in her school at her desk and thought, what would Gloria do? And she thought, Gloria would not cheat on this test. And she said, I can't tell you that. And what my dad had done was that he had created this thing in the power of a story. And Jesus does the same thing where he takes his listeners and he tells them a story and he engages them in a story. And all the while, hidden in plain sight, he's weaving it in, into these truths, these principles, and they don't even recognize what he's doing. And he would leave them hanging and they would be begging, tell us more, tell us more. This is how he taught. In Mark chapter 4, it says this, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. And as he would speak these things, as he would tell the stories, these stories would either reveal truth or conceal truth, depending on where they were. He would say often, he who has ears to hear, let him listen. Consider how you listen to these stories. Are you hearing them as just stories? Are you listening and thinking and going deeper on that? Are you understanding the truth? Are you understanding what the story is really about? Or it would conceal for those who wouldn't think, wouldn't want to, to really dig into that, maybe not want to hear that. And he would tell these stories, and they were everyday stories, stories of stuff they understood, stories from real life. And they were simple stories, but they were not simplistic. In fact, quite the opposite. They were extremely profound in these stories. In fact, as it was said about him in telling these parables, in quoting Psalm 78 in Matthew chapter 13, it says, so, what, so was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. These truths that have been hidden from the brightest of minds, Jesus said, I'm going to reveal these in telling a simple story with a profound truth underneath them. And he would. And in these stories, he would tell of the biblical principles. He would tell these truths. He would tell, and his favorite thing was to tell what the kingdom of God was like. To give these stories, to, to throw a truth alongside of these stories. So today we're going to continue on, and we're going to look at two more stories. As I mentioned last week, there are these things called parable pairs, where Jesus would do these back-to-back -back stories, similar stories, but different, but probably making the same, the same point from two different angles, two different facets of the same. And so we're going to look at two of these parables. And, and these two parables that we're going to look at, they are eensy-teensy, teeny-weeny, they are not yellow, and they're not polka-dotted, but they are small little stories, some of the small... Three verses total for these two stories. And both stories talk about something extremely tiny, extremely small. And what we're going to find in the first story is that the smallest word in the, in the English alphabet plays a significant role. So these small stories, tiny little items, and one small little word. 
It's found in Matthew chapter 13. As I said, half of this series comes out of Matthew chapter 13. In that chapter, he, Matthew records seven of these parables. And, uh, and in this, as I was studying this, I was looking at this parable and I was thinking, is this like a story about Jesus? Or is this in his role, you know, in the kingdom? Or is this about the kingdom's role in our life? Or is this about the kingdom's role in the world? And, and these, these three thoughts just kept weaving together, kind of this. And, and so I thought, well, I've got to pick one of these. And finally I said, no, I'm not going to. We're going to braid this thing. For some of you, it's going to be extremely confusing. And I've been praying that by the power of God's word, living an active word, and his Holy Spirit that still speaks to us today, that somewhere in this woven braid, you won't get lost and that maybe God will speak a truth that you need to hear today. So, Father, I pray, I pray <laughs> that you would take my mess and give us a message. Here we go. You ready? Yeah. All right. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven. So here's a king, another kingdom parable. He says, this is what the kingdom's like. I want you to, the kingdom, like here and now, not then and there, not someday when you die. The kingdom here and now, I want you to understand how it works. I want you to understand what it looks like. I want you to understand this kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. And now you, you see all this. There's this kingdom parable, and it's about a seed. Now, now this is a common theme with Jesus' teaching, and maybe you're familiar with this. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, chronologically, this is the third parable that he tells that encompasses seeds. In the first week of our series, we talked about the sower and the seed, and the sower went along just liberally, generously pouring out these seeds all over to all these four different kinds of soil. And then later, he tells a story about wheat seeds and weeds, uh, weed, seeds of weeds, not, not weed seeds, <laughs> difference. And we'll look at that in two weeks, all right? So, and don't get all excited. They're talking about weed. No, weeds. Different. Okay. Now, this is the third one. And it wouldn't be the only one. Because there's another one in Mark chapter 4 when he, he talks about the mystery of, of how a seed grows and you don't understand. But, and it's so common that we just think, well, yeah, of course that happens. But we don't really know how and the mystery of all that. And so he tells these stories. And, and as he's telling this, the story about this and the mystery about it, I think what he's saying on a 30,000-foot view, on a macro level, is that the kingdom of heaven, I think what he wants us to see is the organic life of the kingdom. That this kingdom of heaven that he's ushering in, the kingdom of heaven that he's inviting us into, the kingdom of heaven that is happening here and now, it's not static. It's not dead. It's not this dusty religion that they're aware of. It's something that's alive and vibrant, filled with vitality, and it's growing just the way that God designed it to. That that's what the kingdom is like. That's why I think there's so many of these parables that show this growth. He says, this kingdom is alive in you right now. All right. So with that, let me go with one of these threads that we're going to weave together today. As I was studying this, he, he, he makes this, this comment about the kingdom, of, the kingdom of heaven being like, like a mustard seed. A mustard seed. Not like the other parables. This is one of the things that distinguishes it. The other parables, the, the farmer's throwing all kinds of seeds around. There's wheat seeds, and there's seeds that, that someone comes in and sows at night that are weeds, and, and the wheat, the, all these seeds. This one talks about a seed. This is different. 
And I think what Jesus does is he, he intentionally minimizes, reduces it down to one seed and a mustard seed at that. And in so doing that, in reducing it down, he magnifies his point. So I was thinking, okay, if the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, smallest word in the, in the English language, a, one, singular, and there's a man, often in these parables, the man, the central figure, or the person represents God. If that's the case, that there's God, and he takes this seed and he plants it in the field, and sometimes the field represents the world, that's the way it is. So if God is planting a seed in the world, and then it made me begin to wonder, I wonder if, I wonder if in this story, Jesus is pulling back the curtain, and he's revealing a picture of himself. What if in this story, because he's talking about a seed, he's saying, I want you to understand how God is bringing this kingdom to bear on this world, that he would send one. And I was thinking, could that be? So, so here's where my mind goes on these rabbit trails. Well, wait a second. I mean, in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of man, when, when, when God is speaking to Lucifer, I mean, he kind of alludes to that, right? Because in, in Genesis 3, it says this, and I will put enmity between you, the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, we're talking about seed, okay, like, yeah, that's why people don't like snakes, except Steve Irwin and stuff, but, but you know, between your seed and her seed. But then he gets singular. He, not they, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's what that's what would happen in the crucifixion, that Satan was, would throw his strongest blow at Jesus, but it'd be like a bruise in the heel compared to what Jesus would do in conquering sin and death. And maybe the seed that is spoken of in Genesis chapter 3 is Jesus. And that would make sense because in Philippians 2, it talks about how though Jesus was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. Of course, this, this infinite God becomes an infinitesimal seed. And in Matthew chapter 1, it says he's conceived of the Holy Spirit, that this divine seed fertilizes the egg of a young virgin named Mary. And in Colossians, it says, and all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him in bodily form. And if that's the case, then maybe when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, maybe he's talking about himself. Maybe he's revealing his divinity. Maybe he's revealing his divine nature. Maybe he's revealing his messianic uh, purpose on this earth to come and change all things. Now, some of you might be saying, yeah, Bob, that is a stretch. That's why you ought to get out more. Okay, I'm with you on that one. But what about this? Paul just comes out and says that. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Ooh. And doesn't Jesus take that same metaphor? Doesn't he take that kind of same word picture? Not just talking about his birth, but in talking about his death, when he begins to predict that he would die and that he would be raised again. In John chapter 12, it says, I tell you the truth, Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, 
it produces many seeds. That Jesus said, yes, I was born of a seed, and I will die like a seed. And you think just the whole picture of, of what happens with a seed is the seed is thrown into the ground, and it's covered over with dirt, and there's no light, and there's no sun, and it can't breathe, and it's dark, and, and it's all alone. It can't hear anything, can't see anything, and thinks, oh, this must be the end. If the little seed can think of itself, this is it. This is the end of the road. I'm dying here. And then somehow, we don't know how mysterious, it's common, so we think it just happens, but mysteriously, some from somewhere, a voice from far above says something to the deepest part of the seed, rise up, come alive. And out of the darkness, out of the, the, the dirt, it begins to put down roots, and something just, just within the seed knows to reach up towards that voice that says, rise up. And every time a seed becomes a plant, there's a little resurrection that takes place. And Jesus says, don't you see, that's my life, death, and resurrection. That I will be planted in the, in the belly of the earth, and it will be dark, and I'll be covered over, and people will think this is the end, and there will be a voice from above that says, rise up, live, and come forth. Oh, that's cool. And it's not just Jesus. What does it say? If he dies, he just remains one seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It's not just what Jesus did for us. It's what Jesus does in us. He says, I did this for you, but I will do it within you. Because you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but I called forth to you, rise up, come to life. Wouldn't Peter allude to that when Peter says, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. This Word of God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus. Jesus is the imperishable seed. Jesus is the seed. Maybe he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, and that's me. And I do this for you, and I do this within you, and it brings life within you. But Paul, again, would allude to this. But this whole idea that for 2,000 years, these seeds have been coming to life. You know, I read an article about something that happened last April. And, and if you allow me to kind of mash up last week's parable with this week's parable, remember last week with the, the hidden treasure in the, in the treasure map, and this week's parable with the seed, kind of bring those together in a real life instance. In, in 1879, a man named William James Beale put together a map because he had, he had buried a bottle Actually, he had buried several bottles. And he put together a map. And so last spring, last April, there were some people from Michigan State University. And they had this map, and they knew of James, uh, uh, William James Beale, and they knew of these bottles. Beale was a botanist. And what he had buried 142 years ago was a bottle filled with seeds. And he wanted to know how long can a seed stay buried and then later be planted and bring forth life. And so it's called the Beale Seed Experiment. And every 20 years or so now, they dig up another one of these bottles that have been planted for over 100 years. So last April, they go out with the map, and they start digging, and they find the bottle. And sure enough, there are all these seeds. Seeds that have been buried, not planted, but buried for 142 years. And they plant them in the soil, and they water it in the sun and all that. And sure enough, something calls to these seeds that have been lying dormant for 142, rise up, come to life. And they begin 
to spring forth with arms to that voice that calls them out. For 2,000 years, the seed of Jesus Christ has been implanted in people's hearts, and he whispers, rise up, come to life. Paul would use this when he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God, God made it grow. He's the one that brought it. It, it, It's God that does this. It's what Jesus did for us. It's what he does within us. Now, we haven't quite gotten through that first parable yet. So let's go back to the parable. Okay. It says this. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds. Now we got to stop here. The kingdom of heaven, when they think kingdom, they're thinking there's going to be this overthrow of the Roman Empire. They're going to be the kingdom of Israel again. They're thinking big. They're thinking powerful. They're thinking political. They're thinking military. And he says, let me tell you about this kingdom. In the midst of the Roman Empire with all the world power, it's like a mustard seed. Can you imagine the disappointment? What? No, no, it's not what we want. He says it's like the smallest little seed. Now, here's where you have to be careful. Don't start going off on details and get high-centered on things. I read an article of someone saying, this is why you can't trust the Bible or trust Jesus, because the mustard seed is not the smallest seed. Okay, that's not the point, all right? I think what he's doing is a comparison and a contrast. Did you know that the second largest seed, I have one, the second largest seed is a coconut. Now, this is a very fancy coconut. This one's all dressed up, ready to go to Sunday meeting kind of coconut. The second largest seed on the planet is a coconut. And Jesus could have come along and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a coconut. But he didn't. He has this contrast. Now, compared to the coconut, it's not even the largest seed. I couldn't get the largest seed. They're not very common here. Compared to a coconut, even an avocado seed seems small. Compared to a coconut, even a peach pit seems small. But Jesus comes along and he says, the kingdom of heaven, it's not a coconut. It's not even an avocado seed. It's not even a peach pit. It's a mustard seed. Now, this little jar has thousands and thousands of mustard seeds. Can you, can you see it there? It's right there. Loa, help us out here, will you? Because I think you can't see it here. You can't, you can't see. Look, can, can we get the extreme close-up of the mustard seeds? So it's right there. I don't know. Can we? Uh, well, yeah, I still can't see it. There we go. That's a mustard seed. So tiny. And I think he's drawing this contrast. All right. Thanks, Law. Appreciate that. That the kingdom is so small. Not like the Roman Empire. Not like what you think. And he says, tiny as it is, minuscule, infinitesimal, yet, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. 
Again, don't get lost in the details. Okay, so the kingdom, it's like a mustard seed, then there's a tree, and then there's birds. But in the other parable, the birds represented the devil, so the devil's in the trees, and the devil's in the tree is the kingdom, so the devil's in the kingdom. Is that the Pharisees? Is that Pastor Bob? What are the devil? What are the birds? What's all the birds about? Okay, is the tree the world, but I thought the earth was the world, and if the dirt's the world, and the tree's the world, or the birds are the world. And wait, stop! You lose the point. What he's saying is something so small, it grows, and it becomes larger. Now, I think, I think he may be given a nod to an Old Testament uh, little reference. For the Pharisees uh, in, the, in, the, in the audience, they would have known in Ezekiel, where it says, on the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in its shade of, of its branches. That he's saying, you know that tree that Ezekiel spoke of? I'm telling you, it's not Israel. It's the kingdom of God. And I think the point that he's making in all of this is that something that starts so small will begin to, begin to grow and it'll begin to expand and it will get larger and larger. And it looks so small, it looks so insignificant, it looks so seemingly meaningless. And yet, it's amazing, kingdom of God. So this kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Okay, so which is it? Is the seed Jesus? Genesis 3, Galatians 3. Is the seed what happens with the kingdom within us? First Peter, it's born of this imperishable seed. Is the seed the kingdom of God in this world? Which is it? They're all woven in. Which is it? Perhaps. Yes. No. Maybe. I don't know. And maybe Jesus is doing that on purpose, saying, then spend some time thinking about it. And maybe it is, or maybe it is, or maybe it's all. And then he gives another parable of something even smaller, smaller than a mustard seed. He goes on in verse 33. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. This is even smaller than a mustard seed. You take a little bit of this fleshman's yeast. I mean, you, you can't even... There's thousands of these little yeast things right here in my hand. I mean, you thought a mustard seed was small. He's saying, this is like invisible. When you put this in the dough, you, can, you don't even see it anymore. It's just gone. Now, here's the thing that we need to talk about before we go any further on this parable, is that when Jesus told this one verse parable, it would have shocked his audience. There would have been gasps. There would have been people saying, oh, no, he didn't. No, you can't, no, don't. There's two reasons, two distinctives about this parable that would have caused his, his listeners to go, whoa, 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 whoa. You, you can't say that. One is that he uses as the main character a woman. And he said, Bob, don't go get all mis misogynistic. No, 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 listen to me. In that culture, a rabbi, and a Pharisee especially, but a rabbi would not interact with a woman. In fact, there was a group of Pharisees that were nicknamed, literally, they were nicknamed the bruised and bleeding Pharisees 
because they didn't want to be tempted by a woman. So anytime they saw a woman, they would avert their attention and they'd put their head down, they'd walk like this and then they'd run into a wall and then they'd do this and run into a wall. And so there are all these bruises and this bleeding. And it was kind of this mark of spirituality. I would say chicks dig it, but that was not their intention. They were trying to not like avoid women at all costs. In fact, a Pharisee would pray every single morning, and some Jewish men would, God, I thank you that I'm not a slave, I'm not a Gentile, and I'm not a woman. And Jesus tells this story, and they're like, he's using a woman as the example, and it's a good example. Why would he do this? Now, some of you are offended because you think, well, he's doing the stereotype, you know, gender roles. The woman's baking bread. Why couldn't she be planting? It says, slow down, slow down, slow down. In that culture, that's what women did. And let me tell you, I think instead of Jesus putting women in their place and he'd be in the making bread, I think what he's saying is, I want women to understand that the kingdom is for them as well. I want to engage women so they understand that I give them a story that they can say, I get that. I want them to see that they're included. No one did more for the value of women in life and in the kingdom than Jesus Christ himself. But those who are listening, especially the rabbis, the Pharisees, they're like, you're using a woman and you're using her as the protagonist. Which means if it holds true like the other parables, the protagonist is often God. Wait, wait, wait. You're equating God to a woman. That was unthinkable. Even though God does it himself in Isaiah, talking about a nursing mother and how that represents God. And Jesus does this. The other thing that would cause him to say, stop, you can't, is that he uses this idea of yeast. In some of your translations, it may say leaven. Because every other reference to yeast or leaven, figuratively or metaphorically throughout Scripture, is always negative. It's always negative. When he would say, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. Don't let it get into your life. Galatians, where it would say, you know, the yeast will get in and it will change. It will infect all of your life. In Corinthians, where he would say, get rid of the old yeast and bake a new life, new bread without yeast. It was always negative. And now he's using something that has always been seen as negative and turning around positive. I don't know if this was just shock value. Now, the principles of yeast play out really well, but I don't know because I think using a woman and using yeast would have caused people to say, whoa. And maybe he does that intentionally just to shake them up and say, think about this one. And here it is, this, this yeast. See, now it may be a little too soon for this, but it would be like Jesus saying to us, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like a virus. Like, no, Jesus, way too soon. No, no, that is not a good thing. What that has done to us, our economy, our world, the division, I lost my aunt, all the, no, no, you can't, the virus is a whore. No, you can't do that. That would have been their, their recoil to Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, is like yeast. No, you don't talk about that. It's a negative thing. All throughout scripture, we've been told to get rid of that. We don't want it. And he says, but the principles, that this yeast that's unseen, it's not passive, but it's active. And at first, it's like you're not even sure if it's still there because it's hidden, and yet it goes to work, and it infiltrates everything, and it impacts, and it transforms. And he says, like a woman who takes a little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven, 
And this large amount, we don't have time to go into this large amount, but he's talking about enough bread to feed 100 people. And just a little bit transforms that entire loaf. He says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. So as I'm living with these and these three streams, okay, well, is that Jesus? Is that the kingdom in our life? Is that the kingdom in the world? Yeah, perhaps. Let me just spend the rest of my time just talking about maybe each of those three, Jesus, us, and the world. Because maybe in both of these parables, we see some principles that play out in all three situations. Like for in Jesus, it's very clear that in both parables, he's pointed out the might of the minuscule. Something very tiny has incredible power, a seed. Now, now again, if you'll let me mash up two parables, in the first week when we looked at the parable of the seed and the sower, when the seed fell on the hard path, it just like wouldn't go into the ground and the birds came and ate it. But yet the seed has this incredible power. I don't know if you've ever noticed, if a seed kind of falls in a crack and is given half a chance, it will grow. I don't know if you've ever seen a sidewalk that's all buckled because of the roots, because a seed was given half a chance. I don't know if you've ever seen a driveway that's cracked because of the roots, because a seed was given half a chance. I don't, I don't know if you've seen a foundation that is cracked. And maybe what he's saying is, listen, in this Roman empire that no one can overthrow, the seed of the kingdom of God, the seed of Jesus, given half a chance, will make an incredible difference here. And as far as the yeast... At the beginning, it's relatively imperceptible. It's like you don't even see it. But over time, it has this relentless growth, this impact, this transformative, active power that transforms the whole thing. And then it's undeniable. So here's Jesus, a seed, a penniless rabbi, no budget, no buildings, never wrote a book. He's only got three years, and then he's executed like a common criminal. Nothing could be more insignificant than that, right? And yet the seed is planted, and in a matter of years, the Roman Empire is gone, but the kingdom of God flourishes. That the, the active power of the kingdom of God transforms the world. Kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Yeah, Jesus, yeah. Well, how about its work within us? And, and I think that plays out as well. That has to do with the, the whole illustration of hope and growth in our life. And again, if, if you'll let me blur the lines in these parables, and I may get to heaven and Jesus said, you really messed up on those parables. Okay, he'll forgive me. If you'll let me blur these parables, what if, it's this hope and growth in our lives. What if the seed represents what Jesus does, brings this, this new life within us, and then the Holy Spirit, like the yeast, begins to transform us, begins to change us. Not behavioral modification, full life transformation. That he who began a good work in you, the seed was planted, the life was out. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit's ongoing work of making us more and more like Christ Jesus. Remain in me and I will remain in you. You will never be the same. I will continue my work in transforming you. It's what I did for you. It's what I do in you. And it's what I do through you. Like in this world. That we're 
we are central to the strategy of the kingdom. That Jesus' goal was not to just get us into the kingdom and say, there, we're done. Now just wait there until you die and then you get the rest of eternity. No, getting in the kingdom was not the end. It was the beginning. We're not to be passive recipients, but active participants. Yes, he would say, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Yes, but that within you is supposed to expand and to grow and impact and go out into others. Like everywhere we go, that we would be these little pockets of transformation. Wish we had time to go into the whole active uh, ingredient of yeast and what it does to dough and these little pockets that begin to be changed, begin to be transformed. And Jesus calls us to do the same thing. And our excuse is, but Jesus, I don't have this gift and I don't have this influence and I don't have this wealth and I don't have these resources and I can't and I'm just one. And he says, exactly the point. You are just one but you have the seed of life living within you and the Holy Spirit right within you. And hasn't Jesus always used the most unlikely one to bring change and transformation? He meets the woman at the well, Samaritan woman, Samaritan woman with a sordid past and life begins. And what does he do with that woman? He sends her back into the village and like yeast in a lump of dough, there's a transformation that happens. And because of this one woman, who's not perfect, who's not fully renewed, who's not fully transformed, this is like her first day in the kingdom. And he says, now go. And many in that village became followers of Jesus because of that one woman. The demoniac of the Gadarenes, I mean, this guy's life was out of control. No one gave him the time of day. No, everyone avoided him, and he met Jesus. And something happens. There's life. Rise up. Come alive. He says, Jesus, I want to go with you. He says, no, no, no. Go back home. Go to the Decapolis, the 10 cities, the 10 Roman cities, and tell them what I've done for you. And he sends the one. Think about it in your own life. Think about the impact of that parent, that Sunday school teacher, that coach, that young life leader, that neighbor, that coworker, that friend, that youth group leader. Think about that one person, the thing that they did, and it just, it was like planting a seed. It was like this, this part of this transformation. It's this altering the spiritual landscape one life at a time. And this revolution of one life, just it's the ongoing revolution of one life. It's one life at a time. And maybe Jesus is saying all of these things. I am the seed of the kingdom. But that seed brings life to your life. And now, I want you, like yeast, to transform, to change the world. It can be small. Everything he talks about is small here. Almost imperceptible. Seemingly insignificant. And yet God will change. Uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Kip and I were at able to go to a conference where David Kinnaman was the speaker, keynote speaker. David Kinnaman is the president of the Barna Research Group. And all kinds of st statistics and charts, they, they survey thousands, literally probably millions of people. And he talked about the state of the church in the world and, you know, what's gone wrong and what's right. And he said, this was so fascinating to me. He said, one of the greatest opportunities and tools that we as Christ followers have is prayer. Yes, go in your prayer closet and pray. Yes. He said, do you realize that in our world, the number of people who are receptive to being prayed for, this is like, this is like a great on-ramp for any relationship. 
So then he starts, he pulls up the chart, all these statistics. Practicing Christians. Of course, you would hope that a practicing Christian would be open to prayer. Non-practicing Christians, open to prayer. Non-Christians, you ask, can I pray for you? Yes, absolutely. He found that of atheists, people with no faith and atheists, 23% of them are open to having someone pray for them. Why not? Give me a rabbit's foot, throw up a prayer. What an incredible opportunity. Listen, when we interact with people, one of the greatest things you can do, you say, well, I'm not an evangelist, and I don't want to get into all this, and I can't remember the four spiritual laws. Not, no, 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 no. Maybe it's simply, can I be praying for you? Or how can I pray for you? And maybe that just plants a little seed. And as you pray, maybe God begins to work in their heart. And if you'll circle back around and say, hey, I've been praying for you. How's it going? Maybe God will just continue to work. Mother Teresa said a version of this. I've seen it in several different ways. There are no great things, only small things with great love. You know, one of the things that we are about around here is go and be. Go and love and be a light. It's not a program of Cornwall Church. It's not a department of Cornwall Church. Our prayer is that it wouldn't just be Cornwall Church, but as a Christ follower, it's not what we do. It's who we are. That we go and we recognize God has called us into this. And it may seem small to us, but God can use it to transform a life, to transform a family, to transform a community, to transform the world. So he says, hey, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a mustard seed. It's like a <laughs> mustard seed that a man took and he planted in a field. It's like a woman who took yeast and it changed the whole lump of dough. It started small. How about these words out of Zechariah? Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Kingdom of heaven, it's what Christ did for us. It's what Christ does in us. It's what Christ is doing through us. And he invites us, be a part of this kingdom. You're welcome. And be involved in this kingdom. Not just a passive recipient, but an active participant. And see what God says. What if? What if what Jesus said there is not just some global principle, but words he speaks to you and to me. I want you, and I want you, and I want you, and I want you, and I want you to be the seed that makes a difference. And watch what I do. And what if we live that way? God, transform me by the power of your Holy Spirit. I want to be yielded to you, submitted to you, surrendered to you. I run to you. And use me in any way possible, small, large, insignificant to my mind, to plant seeds to further your kingdom. And he says, let's go. Let's go.